Are you ready to get into the Word this morning? You're going to have to be more ready than that. Come on. Let's go. We'll dig into the Word this morning. Uh, before I do that, I suppose I need to explain why I'm wearing this fashionable device on my right arm, because otherwise I'm going to have to answer it 500 times today. <clears throat> I was ice fishing, and I caught such a large fish that it pulled my arm out of socket. <laughs> Is that the best fish story you ever heard or what? That's not exactly what happened. I fell over backwards and stuck out my elbow and dislocated my right shoulder. And if you've ever dislocated a joint, it's extremely painful, and it tends to tear and break things when it happens. So I have a fracture and uh, some torn components in there, but I don't need surgery, and it actually feels pretty good. So they said, wear the sling most the time. And the word most, I think, is subject to definition and a significant amount of liberality, and so I'm taking that. I'm not confident I'll even make it through the whole message having to wear it. We'll see how it goes. But appreciate your concern. Also, I, for those of you that were unaware, I've been gone for a couple weeks. I've been recovering from COVID. I'm still having trouble with my lungs. So if I start to lose my voice or I start to huff and puff halfway through my message today, you will know why. But I do continue to recover, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, God's grace has really been with us. What I want to begin to talk to you about out of the Word today is the idea of being strong. Being strong. We were looking at Ephesians chapter 6 last week, and uh, we were talking about the armor of God, and we're, we were looking, I want to recap some of the main passages of Scripture that we were looking at to help prepare us for what I want to begin to talk about today. And I want to begin actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, as, as a way of reminding you what we've been talking about. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war According to the flesh. For the weapons are of our warfare, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So even though we're walking through a natural, fleshly kind of a life, where we, we, we live in the natural and we deal with things in a very natural way, we're actually engaged in a conflict that is not natural. It's also supernatural. And Paul begins to draw attention to the idea that we have weapons that we use and engage with that are actually divine. And they deal with strongholds in our lives. Not physical strongholds in the natural, but things that have a hold in our hearts and in our minds. We have weapons to help us deal with that in our in our lives. And we're thankful for that. We were looking at Ephesians chapter 6 last week, and it's where I want to begin today. Are we, do, are we going to have that PowerPoint this morning? Maybe? Momentarily? All right, sounds good. These guys all memorized it already anyway, so we're good. Ephesians chapter 6, for though, uh, let's go one more. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And this is what I want to be the resounding thing in the back of your mind as we walk through various scriptures today and through a story about Jesus. I want in the back of your mind the underlying thing to be that Paul has challenged us, be strong in the Lord. What does it mean to be strong? When I think of strong, I think of things like the muscles in our body and whether we're strong enough to lift something. Obviously, I'm unable to do as much as I could with my right arm because it's not as strong. It's weak. 
muscles are strained, they're atrophied, whatever it is. I'm not strong enough to do what I need to do. Strength comes from the idea of the power to make something happen. If, I, if my muscle is powerful enough, I can lift whatever object or do what I need to do. If my legs are strong enough, I can run a certain speed. I want to be strong. But Paul encourages us, be strong in the Lord. How do I have power when it comes to the Lord? How do I have the power to live life uh, efficiently, successfully, fruitfully? How can I, where do I get that energy to expend in order to navigate my spiritual life? Be strong in the Lord, Paul encourages us. And I want to dive more into that today, but in order to recap a little bit about what we talked about last week, I want to continue through Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He gives us this illustration as though we wear armor in a spiritual way, and we're resisting. It takes strength to resist. It takes strength to stand. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly Places And we talked a little bit about this over the last few weeks. It's a little bit hard to comprehend and get our heads around. But for some reason, we, we've got uh, an evil power, Satan, and evil angels in the world that have authority in the world that we're in battle against that are constantly tempting and trying to derail us and, and trying to cause problems in the world. We've got a conflict with them, and the scriptures drawing attention to that, and we're, to, we're then to put on armor that comes from God so that we can be strong. See, we can't be strong by ourselves. That's why it says be strong in the Lord. If I try to be just Mr. Tough Guy or engage only my own human faculties in order to deal with my enemy, just my logic or just my emotional fortitude, which are good things and they're helpful in that journey, but they're not strong enough for me to navigate the spiritual difficulty that we face. I have to find a strength that comes from the Lord, and so we begin to look at this armor of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, Paul encourages us again, that you may be able to withstand. How do I have the strength? I've got to put on these godly principles of the armor of God in order to stand firm, to remain strong. And so we see the belt of truth. We see the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We talked about all of those last week, and I'm not going to cover those again, but I do want to draw your attention to what they are. They are uh, principles that are found in God. Can we go on to the next slide, please? Just... They're principles that are rooted in God. They're not fleshly things. Go ahead, one more to the list of the armor. And one more. Thank you. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the spirit and the word of God. All these things, not physical, natural things that we can carry around, but they are godly principles that we have got to put on in order to navigate the challenging things in our lives. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. It's interesting when you look at this list, first of all, to note that these are not just fleshly things, but they are godly attitudes, godly character, things that are rooted in God. That's where we get our strength. Now, notice what's not on this list. Perhaps if you could come up, if you have never known this story, what would be the armor that you would come up with in order to deal with life? 
There are things like wittiness. The belt of wittiness. Wittiness doesn't win the battle to be witty and clever. There's not a shield of rebellion. There's not malice. There's not protest. There's not arrogance. There's not independence. There's not human toughness. There's not selfishness. They aren't, there aren't principles that are rooted in humanity. Things that we often try and use to get our way in life or to navigate our difficult circumstances, God challenges us to lay ourselves aside and our selfishness and all the things that come with it so that we can navigate life according to his principles. So if we want to be a strong people, people who have the power to overcome, the power to reach and counsel other people towards the Lord, the power to deal with the strongholds and the difficulties and the sin that's in our lives, we've got to root ourselves in godly principles, not human principles. That is how our war is waged. We've got to put on these characteristics of God. Last week I mentioned the story where we see a great illustration. You know, in, in, in some Christian circles you would call this spiritual warfare. There's an engagement with spiritual things. But we, we often, when we picture warfare, we picture human-type battlefields and, and armaments and things like that. But actually, in the spirit, it's, it's quite different. These principles are at work. Principles of truth. Principles of righteousness and faith at work in that battle. And probably the most uh, um, visible, detailed encounter in the Bible about this is the temptation of Jesus himself. Jesus engaged with Satan himself. And he didn't engage him with a machine gun and a tank. He didn't engage him with clever policies and human things. He engaged him in a very different way. And in that, Jesus demonstrates for you and I where real power comes from. How really to overcome and to succeed and become fruitful in our lives. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 4. And that's where we're going to read about the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led by the Spirit. The idea of being led by the Spirit is a subject we could dig into for many days. A lot of people have a lot of different ideas about what that means. Did the Spirit literally pick Jesus up and move him into the wilderness like he did Philip or like he did Elijah? I think... We see a couple of examples like that in the Bible. For the most part, being led by the Spirit means that we are allowing God to to cause impetus in our lives in a certain direction. He's wanting to incite us. He's wanting to to, to push us and, and lead us in life. And being led by the Spirit is where the Spirit of God is inside each one of us, motivating us along in a certain direction. And for whatever reason, Jesus knew And he felt in his spirit that God was leading him, that the Father was leading him into the wilderness. And it's unusual that he would lead him into this situation of temptation, isn't it? We question that because when we pray the Lord's, what we call the Lord's Prayer, or when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the phrases in that prayer says, lead us not into temptation. We don't want to be tempted. Being tempted is very difficult to overcome. 
It can be very, very challenging to our faith. We don't really want to face our enemy and be tested all the time. That's very challenging. And so we pray, God, just have grace and mercy upon us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And yet at the same time, we also understand that life is full of tests and trials for us, where our faith is being tested, where our enemy challenges us. And while we want to avoid those things as much as we possibly can, it's still part of our lives. And Jesus is an example. So what's the context here? Jesus has just been baptized, and a voice came out of heaven and said, this is my son. Only it probably sounded more like this, this is my son. You know, this powerful voice from heaven. People heard it. It's like a miraculous sign. And Jesus is beginning his public ministry here. But before we see any accounts of anything, we, besides his baptism, we see that immediately after his baptism, he goes into a time of testing and trial. And our lives very much are that way. We want to get to all the good things in life. We want to accomplish everything that God has put in our hearts to accomplish. Danny, could you please get me a cup of water or something, please? <clears throat> Thank you, appreciate that. We want to accomplish all these things, and we want to get there without the temptations, without the trials, without the testing, but even Jesus didn't get there. Jesus himself had to walk through trials and temptation. He went through a lot of suffering in his lifetime as an example to you and I about how to live life. He was led by the Spirit, and he was going into this time of testing, and he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Has anybody fasted for 40 days ever in their life? I, I've met a few people that have done it. They do it. People do it. And fasting is a, a powerful spiritual discipline we don't talk often about because we don't like it. The idea of humbling our flesh, of, of quieting the noisy voice of self in order to humble ourselves before God. Jesus is out fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And guess what? You're never going to believe this. He was hungry. <laughs> Would you be hungry? We would be hungry. And it's in a moment like this where our, our enemy comes along to stir up problems for us. You know, it also draws attention to this. Thank you, dear. Appreciate it. It also reminds us of this, that Jesus was fully man. Jesus could not be uh, the savior of the world if he wasn't fully man. He was fully man and he was fully God, the doctrine of the Trinity, something that we believe and teach. He had to be completely human in order to be the perfect sacrifice for us. It wouldn't make sense if someone completely different and outside could pay the price for us. He became like one of us. He suffered like one of us. He experienced the trials and the tribulations of this life, just like you and me. His temptations were very real. His struggle was very real. His suffering was very real. Sometimes I think we have the temptation of going, well, but he was God, so he probably dealt pretty well with it. I don't think that was probably the reality. He had to be fully man in order to sympathize with our suffering. How do you drink a water with a head mic on like this? Did you all just wonder that if I was going to dip this microphone in the water when I took a drink? We're very serious here. Thank you very much. He was led by the Spirit. He was tempted and he was hungry. Now let's look at this temptation process. And the tempter came to him. The tempter. This is what, another way we can refer to our enemy. We, there's a number of ways the scripture refers to him. Um, the adversary, the accuser, the tempter. 
the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, Satan, the devil, etc. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So what does it mean to tempt? Tempting, if you really think about what it is, it's, it's, it's a, to prove something. There, there's a, uh, a challenge to prove. There's a challenge to attempt. Did you ever consider that? The word attempt and temptation are actually connected in their meaning. There's a testing. There's that enticement to do something or be something. There's, there's this, this prove it sort of attitude behind the idea of tempting, but there's also that appeal to, to do something. It's a conditional thought that Satan presents here. If, if you are the Son of God. See, what just happened at Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven boomed, this is my Son. And Satan shows up after 40 days of fasting and says, well, if you really are, there's a conditional statement of if. He doesn't say, since you are, He's not accepting that fact. He's testing him. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He's not assuming it's true. He's questioning him. He's challenging him. Prove your identity to me. Prove that you're really the son of God. And after all, you're hungry. Why should you suffer? If you're really that powerful, turn these loaves of, or these uh, rocks into loaves of bread. That would be tempting to do especially after 40 days of having not eaten. Why should you suffer any longer? Do something to make yourself feel good. And by the way, are you sure you, th- you are who you say that you are? Doesn't that so- start to sound familiar to you and I? You and I probably have never been tempted to turn rocks into bread. I don't know about you. I never have. It's crossed my mind a few times when I was hungry, but just because I know the story. I'm not particularly tempted I mean, Satan doesn't tempt me in this way. Not an issue. However, we recognize the tone. We recognize the, some of the motivations there. Are you who you really say that you are? Because I know you better. I know your sin. I know your shortcomings. I know your flaws. And sure enough, our enemy gets in our mind and begins to work doubt and work suffering in our soul. Prove it. Why don't you prove it? If you were really a Christian, you could do that. If you were really a Christian, every time you prayed, everyone would be healed. If you were really a Christian, but Jesus, he's... See, this, this is spiritual warfare. It's not, this is like a chess match. This isn't a battlefield with swords or guns and tanks and earth being taken. This is a chess match for the mind and soul. It's a battle in a different place. So he's challenging his identity. He's appealing to his flesh. You and I all know that in in any variety of ways. Whether it's um, sexual things, material things. We're tempted according to our flesh. Because we desire certain things that we don't get to have. And we're selfish. And that's where our spiritual warfare takes place. Did you know those simple decisions you make in everyday life are spiritual warfare? They are. Because there's a war for your soul. There's a war for your allegiance to God. And there's a temptation there to abandon 
his way to seek your own. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, For all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And some teachers would connect these three things that Jesus is being tempted by with those ideas. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus, of course, responds to Satan, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. What is Jesus' response? I mean, he is Jesus after all. He probably could just come up with whatever he wanted to say, and it would be authoritative. But instead, as an example to you and I today, what does he lean on to deal with his enemy? What does he pull out right there? We talked about it last week. The word of God. The sword of the spirit. How is he going to engage in this conflict for his allegiance to God and his soul? He pulls out the word of God and he wields it with excellence and understanding. He knows what it says. But he answered, it is written. It is written. What what does that tell us about a number of different things about our faith? Jesus relied on the word of God as the foundation for what he's about to say and do. It is written. Because God has said, and then I want to fast forward into my time and my day, my life, your life, and we're confronted with certain things. And we have to ask ourselves, when we want to believe something or we want to think something, or we're tempted even by something that is, that is good in the world, I want something even good. I have to always go back to what does the word say? What was written? What is the authoritative word of God? And what does Jesus rely on as authoritative? By the way, here, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. A lot of times we're tempted to believe that the Old Testament is irrelevant to common everyday life today. It's quite relevant. There's a lot of relevancy there. But it takes some wisdom and discretion to understand how those things apply in our life. Jesus had full command of the word of God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He held the words that come from the mouth of God in higher regard than he did his own sustenance. How did Jesus engage in spiritual warfare? He pulled out the word of God, he laid himself low, and he made God his strength. How do we be strong? We gotta pull out the word of God and use it like Jesus did. We've got to have command of it. We've got to understand what it teaches and says and how to use it in those moments where we're tempted. It's not all about what Jesus wants here. Surely he was hungry. Surely he had the power to turn the bread, the rocks into bread, but he did not. He submitted and said to someone greater and more powerful who had a bigger plan than what he had. And he does so as an example to us. The devil took him to the holy city meaning Jerusalem, and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Again, probably not something that's ever going to be tempting to me, but for whatever reason, it's, it's going to be a way to tempt Jesus. Now let's picture the situation here. There must be some sort of supernatural element to it because it says that the devil placed him on the pinnacle. Somehow he physically moved him there. And I don't know what the pinnacle of the temple looked like, but obviously it was the high place. You're talking about a very busy city. People all over the place. And I wonder if anyone saw Jesus up there. 
and I try to comprehend what is the nature of this temptation? What is he really getting at in trying to get Jesus to do this? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. So you're in this busy place. There's people everywhere. I mean, obviously, if Jesus throws himself off the top of the temple, that's going to get noticed. Maybe that was part of why he was tempting him. Just prove it to all these people. Show yourself for who you really are. Make yourself look powerful and glorious and amazing in front of these people. It's really interesting when you look at <coughs> excuse me, most of the uh, miracles that Jesus does. I mean, he is serving people. He is blessing people. He's not showing off. He's not showing off his power as though it's some sort of toy. It's really important for us to consider how Jesus lived. And this is a major moment in his life. If, again, this conditional statement, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off of here. For it is written. Now Satan is quoting the scripture. Now it's getting complicated. This chess match has just taken a shift. This spiritual warfare, this conflict has taken a notch up. And that happens in our own lives too. Sometimes something, you know, we're able to overcome temptation. We're being tested in a certain way. Hey, turn these rocks into, into bread. We overcome. We, we succeed in that situation, but a greater challenge comes along. More things at stake. Now we're being tempted even by the word of God. Satan used the word of God to tempt Jesus. What an interesting concept. But actually, it does hail back to the beginning of time in the garden, doesn't it? Did God really say... Well, here he's saying to Jesus, didn't God say? He shall command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's, he's quoting Psalms 91, 11, and 12. Satan quoted scripture to Jesus in order to tempt him. A lot of interesting thoughts that we could contemplate there. Go ahead and throw yourself down. You don't have anything to worry about. He's flippant. He's lacking respect for the word of God. He's putting Jesus in a position of testing whether or not God would really do it. I'm not sure God really would, so I'm going to go ahead and put him to the test. He's twisting the word. What is he appealing to? I don't, I don't necessarily know the answer to that. But I see, you know, even in ourselves, when we read the word of God, we see powerful things. We become curious about them. Wow, that's a powerful thing about God. But if I treat it with disrespect and I start trying to test him in this, being flippant, lacking respect, starting to put God to the test in my life, pushing the limits. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute. But Jesus responds, again, it is written. The most detailed encounter of spiritual warfare that you and I know in the scripture, this is how it went down. It's not particularly glorious for the silver screen, but it's very powerful for you and I in our daily lives. He overcame the very power of Satan, quoting the scripture, appealing to the scripture, appealing to the authority of God. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus shows us his command of the word. It's right there. He's, he's ready to use it in this situation. But it also now... Un draws attention to another thing. When we talk about the interpretation of Scripture, we talk about the meaning of individual words and sentences. 
We talk about the meaning of those individual words and sentences in their context. And then we talk about the overall teaching and themes of Scripture. And then the fourth thing in interpretation of Scripture is some historical facts that we're aware of. But that third point right there, why is that a major component of our interpretation of Scripture? Having command of the whole story, understanding the whole of God's redemptive process. It's so important because Satan cherry-picked something right out of the middle of Scripture, took it out of, out of context, now completely out of context, to be used in the wrong way and put Jesus to the test with it. But Jesus says, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So I have this promise that even if I did throw myself off of here, he would, he would gird me up, he would rescue me, he would keep me from stumbling. Jesus understands that he is not to put God to test in that way. These are not contradictions. See, a lot of times we look at something like this and say, we don't put the Lord our God to the test, but you know, he would rescue me if I stumbled. Are those a contradiction? Does the scripture contradict itself? Again, if we believe in the whole of scripture and the teaching of it as a whole, we understand that things taken out of context can be very, very dangerous. And putting God to the test can be very dangerous. Of course, I could use very simple things. Well, God loves me so I can be stupid. That's a much more real, everyday life kind of thing. I can abuse substances. God still loves me. He'll take care of me. Nothing bad will happen to me. I can drive 125 miles an hour down the freeway without my seatbelt on. Put God to the test. Because he loves me. He's not going to let me get hurt. And we do that. that. That kind of thinking creeps into our minds. Okay, those are, those are extreme examples, but in everyday little ways. We are called to obey God. And we're called to walk in his ways. We do not want to be a people that's putting him to the test when we're not led by his spirit to do the things that we do. Or led in obedience to the scripture. Let me give you a, some, a more serious example. Uh, how many of you have heard of snake handler churches? If you're from the deep south, you might know more about it. Let me explain this to you. There is a passage in Luke chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. And I'm just going to focus on a little bit of it for a second. It says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Okay? That has been taken and developed into an entire doctrine where they believe that if you... You should be able to handle poisonous snakes. Literally, these exist in the United States. There have been over 100 documented deaths, and a number of them just in the last few years. In the United States, in churches where you prove you're saved, and you prove you're full of the Holy Spirit by handling these snakes and surviving snake bites. Now, you want to talk about putting God to the test. It's sad. There have been lawsuits about a seven-year-old girl died. Can you imagine putting a seven-year-old girl up to holding a timber rattlesnake to prove that she loved Jesus? You want to talk about a massive twisting of the scripture for something sickening, in my opinion? Why? Because, yes, Paul was bitten by a viper, and they expected him to die, and God healed him. But Paul wasn't playing with the viper. He wasn't putting God to the test going, I dare you, God, I dare you to save me, and I dare this snake to bite me. Forgive me for being a little bit cynical about it, but no wonder people think Christians are weird. That's crazy. 
It's testing God in one of the most bizarre ways. But we do that in little ways, don't we? We put God to the test. I'll go ahead and push the limit here because God promises that. And we begin to deceive ourselves. It's really, I, I just, I was reading about this and I'm like, but what did they, what, what's going on in that situation? Okay, let's go back and let's just put healthy biblical interpretation to practice here. What's going on in that situation in Luke where he says, you shall tread on serpents and scorpions? What's happened? His disciples have just come back. They've had success in dealing with demonic forces in people's lives. They're very happy about that because that hasn't happened up until this point in time. And they come back rejoicing that these demons have submitted to them. But Jesus says, behold, or I'm sorry, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So are we to go ahead and go ahead and out, go out there and test God to see if we won't get hurt? No, we're falling for the temptation of Satan in that. That's not faith, that's foolishness and folly. And Jesus is talking about spiritual power. And he actually goes on to say, do not celebrate that demons flee in your name. And that's what we do. We celebrate at the power that we get sometimes. But he says, rather that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life, in the book of life, he says in that context. What does he do? He's prioritizing. We don't want to go out like we're little kids with a brand new sword and put God to the test with it. We have to be wise and diligent about how we live and how we use these promises that God has given to us. Challenging things. The third thing the devil tempted him with. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I want to shift over to Luke's account of this story to look at this particular temptation. It says, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Again, we get a glimpse into the supernatural thing that's going on here. Okay, there, there's things beyond our boundaries going on in this situation between Satan and Jesus. I don't know if they just zapped, Satan just zapped Jesus to the top of this mountain. It says, in a, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. That's beyond our rationale, what's going on. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. Now we talked about this in weeks gone by. How Satan has a, 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 a albeit limited but significant authority over the earth. A limited but significant authority over the kingdoms of the earth. And he is trying to entice Jesus to join him. He's appealing really to a, a very powerful thing. I mean, if, if, you, if you were sent to the earth to be the Messiah as a person, this would be a quick way to have power over the whole world, wouldn't it? And you don't have to go through all that suffering and stuff that you're going to have to do. Rather, I'll give you authority all over, over all this if you will worship me. Here's the third if. It's not an if about who you are. It's like, I'm going to make your life easier. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you all these things. Again, probably not a temptation that you and I are going to face because we don't have that kind of authority or power that Satan wanted. But 
but it still does come down to that. There's the temptation to leave the mission of God, the life of God, because, you know, what, what, there's a number of different, I'm trying to think of the Billy Joel song. It's, you know, I'd rather cry, I'd rather, what does it say? Rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints? There we go. That's what it is. A lot of music and things out there like that. Why? I'd, oh, I'd much rather have the fun. I'd much rather have the glory. I'd ra- much rather do the fun and easy self-serving things than have to do what God has called me to do, who God has called me to be. There's an appeal to the power. Maybe there's a thing of, hey, I'm more fun than God. I mean, how many of, as young people, when we're growing up, there's a lot of that sense of like, man, is, is, you know, is God just kind of like a guy that wanders around trying to poke holes in our fun? No, I don't think so. But sometimes that's our perspective, especially when we're young. God has called us to serve him and be in allegiance with him. So we don't, here's, here we see a glimpse into something else that we've, we haven't really seen for sure in the scripture up till this point. I mean, this is the most interaction we have with Satan in understanding some of his motivations. We do see here very clearly that he desires to be worshipped. He desires to be the authority in the situation in people's lives. And when you and I give ground through sin to him, he has authority in our lives. Albeit not all authority if, if we're Christ followers. That's something that we have to be very sure of. Now, let's go back to our original thought here. Paul says to us, be strong in the Lord. Be strong. And we look at Jesus' situation. How was Jesus strong? Let's look at his response. But Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, we can breeze over these temptations as though maybe they weren't that big of a deal. But if you were really able to see all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and have the opportunity to have authority over all of them, would you be tempted? I think we would. These are very real things. But Jesus stood strong in the truth of Scripture. He had the truth on. He had the righteousness, the right moral standing and heart in that situation. You know, he's got that uh, sword out. He's demonstrating for you and I what this battle really is like and what it's really about and how really to be strong. We don't lean on our own strength. We don't lean on our own understanding. There are moments where we fall back and we go, we've got to root ourselves in the word of God and the strength of his might. The devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Even Jesus in his humanity was ministered to by angels, though he had more authority and power than them. Isn't that interesting? Again, I believe it's for our benefit. In fact, we know this is for our benefit because Jesus had to have recounted this story to his disciples later because they weren't with him. How do we have this story? Jesus had to have disclosed this story to his disciples at some point because they were not there to witness it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. We're encouraged in the book of Hebrews, speaking of Jesus as the high priest over the church, so to speak. That's kind of the the context of Hebrews and what it talks about. We don't have one that's 
high and lofty and disconnected and doesn't understand our weaknesses. Jesus understands your weaknesses. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. And he's there to help you navigate those challenges. How do we be strong? We lean on this great priest we have, Jesus and his example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's a little bit of a thing that gets misconstrued here sometimes. You know, we've heard the saying, God won't give you more than you can bear. I disagree. God will give you way more than you can bear, but he will provide a way of escape when it comes to temptation. So you don't stand there in the face of the devil, facing the temptation, being tough, I'm going to deal with it. What does it say? Flee. Flee the evil desires of youth. Flee those moments of temptation. We run away so that we can endure it. God is merciful upon us. And lastly, the Lord is my strength. Psalm 28, verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song, I praise him. Would you stand, please? Be strong. How do you do that? Be with God. Be in his word. Be in prayer. In those moments of temptation and difficulty and struggle, lean back on the word of God. Look for the opportunity to escape. All those things that God has given us to be strong in our struggle. Lord, we thank you, God, that you, did, you could have said, hey, you got to just be really tough and try and get through it. <laughs> you didn't do that. You said, no, I'm, I'm going to be one of you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to be able to sympathize with your weaknesses. God, I pray for everyone in here, Lord, that you would help us strengthen where we are weak. Lord, that we would build that spiritual muscle that we would embrace that armor of godly principles in order that we may withstand what comes against us and we may be able to stand and hold our ground and even that we would be able to advance, Lord, in our own lives and in the lives of others. God, I pray for your strength to be with your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.